Let's stand together for the reading of the gospel. The Holy Gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew, the fifth chapter, beginning at the first verse. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Come now, Holy Spirit, we pray, overrule and overwhelm as we turn to your word and offer you this act of worship and proclamation of your word. We pray for your Holy Spirit to come. Overrule that which is said and that which is heard. Lord, that these things be in accordance to the word of God within the will of God, for the glory of God and for the good of his people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this past Wednesday, we began the season of Lent, that uh, season of preparation leading up to the celebration of Easter. Lent is a time of the year in which we, as followers of Jesus, are called to do the deep work of self-examination and self-reflection. We're called to come face-to-face with ourselves and our sins. Sounds enjoyable, doesn't it? Yeah. We're called to come come face-to-face with ourselves and with our sins, not so we can roll around in our filth like a bunch of pigs, but so that we can surrender these things to God to receive His forgiveness, to receive His transforming grace. And so this season of Lent, it seems incredibly appropriate then to spend our sermon time in a series we've called Vices and Virtues. Now, I'm sure that all of us in here have heard of the seven deadly sins, right? Seven deadly sins, we've all heard of those. Or seven deadly sins, we've all heard of those, yeah? Yeah, the, those of you who didn't respond are guilty of all of them. I, I tease, I kid. Yeah, we all know the seven deadly sins. There was a movie made in the mid-90s called Seven. They've uh, captured the imagination of authors, and they've captured uh, the, the witticisms of modern writers who tend to downplay the severity of the seven deadly sins. They're also called the capital vices. These seven vices, these seven sins actually have a long history. You'll find each of them found in Scripture, referenced in Scripture. They've been emphasized by early church fathers, by St. Augustine. They've been reflected upon by minds such as Thomas Aquinas, Dorothy Sayers, Peter Kreft, and so many others. These seven capital vices, these seven deadly sins, can be and are important for us to consider. They're important for us to consider because, on the one hand, These seven deadly sins, these seven capital vices, are source sins. They typically do not stand alone, as they serve as the roots of weeds that blossom into further and deeper sin and sinful behavior and sinful patterns. They're important to consider because as the people of God, we're called to be holy, as God is holy. And if we think we don't need to deal with sin, well, then we're guilty of at least one of the seven capital vices. 
They're important to consider as well because, quite frankly, we live in a world that needs less vice and more virtue. But this world in which we live that needs less vice and more virtue is paradoxically allergic to the necessary good medicine. As Rebecca Conendike de Young has noted, serious defense of the virtues and serious condemnations of the vices are in terribly short supply. And so this morning we start this series by discussing together, by looking together at the, the capital vice of all capital vices. We look at the chief capital vice, and that is pride. Peter Kreft puts it this way, pride is the living heart of all sins. But what is pride? Where does it come from and what does it do? And if it is so bad, what are or what is the antidote? While we can describe it in a number of ways, pride is fundamentally the assertion of total independence of self, free from connection to and constraints of God. Pride finds its origin with Satan, the enemy of God, and within the human race, it finds its origin in Adam and Eve and the fall in the garden. Pride blinds our eyes. It renders us unable to see God, and it leads us to further sin and sinfulness. And pride's antidote, its only antidote, is Jesus. The righteousness that he imputes to those who believe in him by grace through faith, and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to grow in humility, perfectly achieved and modeled by Jesus himself. As we were reminded on Ash Wednesday, pride sounds an awful lot like this. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. You guys remember that song, right? I mean, everybody was singing that song, at least every grade school girl was singing that song, let it go, let it go, can't hold me back anymore. <laughs> you guys aren't a fan of wildly popular cartoon movies, huh? <laughs> All right, well, if you don't like that song, how about this? I planned each chartered course, each careful step along the byway, and more, much more than this, I did it my way. Oh, you guys don't like music. All right, how about poetry? It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. There's a recurring theme here, and I think you're picking it up. Pride is the fierce independence from anything the self would, be, would call a constraint. Pride is self-defined freedom from anything the I calls limit. Pride is the refusal to submit to the claims of authority. Pride is refusal to submit to the claims of God's authority. And in fact, the capital of capital vices, pride is, in the words of Dorothy Sayers, the sin of trying to be as God. Self-determination can is taken to the extreme in pride, fierce and rugged individualism that echoes in action the spoken sentiment of pre-Socratic Greek philosopher Protagoras, who once said, man is the major of all things. There was an entire period of human history called the Enlightenment that really centered on the pride of humanity. It proclaimed that man could indeed harness creation, that man could answer all of the questions of life, solve the mysteries through the proper application of human intellect and reasoning power. 
The Enlightenment died on the battlefields of World War I and in the ovens of World War II in the Holocaust. We've come now to the end of what many have called postmodernism, which gave individuals the so-called right to determine right and wrong, truth and falsities for the self. And now in this so far unnamed cultural mood in which people are encouraged to self-identify, pride runs amok. But what's the problem with this? What's the problem with pride? What's the problem with independence? What's the problem with self-assertion? What's the problem with applying human reason and intellect to solve all of the world's problems? The problem goes back to where it came from, and the problem comes with what pride does to us. It doesn't take long in the narrative of Scripture to come to the first human assertion of independence from God. We heard it this morning as Shella read to us from Genesis chapter 3. By the way, Genesis chapter 3 is only the third chapter of the first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. But that's not the birth of pride. About pride, Peter Kreft has said, it comes not from the world or the flesh, but from the devil. It comes from hell. It was the devil's original sin. And in his classic work, Paradise Lost, John Milton puts this into the words of Satan. His pride had cast him out from heaven. He trusted to have equaled the Most High. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. And so it is, the deceiver, himself reaping the consequences of his pride, comes to first woman and to first man with a seductive invitation to declare independence from God. God had completed his work of creation. First man and first woman, Adam and Eve, are found in the Garden of Eden, given the privilege, the duty, the pleasure to watch over and keep the garden. They had received from God's hand a superabundance of trees and plants from which to eat. God restricted them only from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then chapter 3 begins, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? As the narrative unfolds, serpent, who is clearly the mouthpiece of God's enemy, Satan, casts doubt upon God's word and God's goodness so that he sows in the mind of Eve and Adam that they can determine for themselves that which is good and right, seize that which is God's. Serpent subtly implies and then directly states that God was holding back on them, that God was not letting them be all that they could be, that there was some uh, uh, limit that God was placing upon their human potentiality. He more than implies that God, at some level, fears a rival. That God was hoarding his godness and his glory like some spoiled child refusing to share. Notice what Serpent says in verse 5 of Genesis 3. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. Seize the fruit. Take it for yourself, Eve. Grab that which God does not allow and assert your independence, your self-determination. Declare good and evil for yourself. Identify yourself in this way. And she did. 
And they did, and sin entered into God's creation. So what's the harm of this seizing? What's the harm of this grasping for godness, the harm of this declaration of independence? The harm is found in the simple fact that sin, death, decay, and moral ruination that leads into a downward spiral of further moral ruination entered into the world. And we are blinded to God. It is because of pride that humans can't see God. We've declared we don't need Him, and we are blinded to Him. In our pride, we make ourselves God, and we declare what is right and what is good. And if we dare think that we do not have to deal with the vice of pride, we are wrong. If we dare think that we are not proud people, we are stupid on steroids because any sin is a manifestation of pride. Any sin stems back to us declaring for ourselves what is good. And more often than not, what we declare to be right and good, what we declare to bring us happiness are things that are neither right nor good and will not possibly bring the happiness that they promise and that we so desperately desire. In the end, our pride leaves us cold. It leaves us frozen. In the end, our pride will leave us alone hiding behind our fig leaves. In the end, our pride leads us deeper into sin and sinfulness and further away from the God by whom and for whom we were made. Pride, G.K. Chesterton once quipped, is a poison so very poisonous that it not only poisons the virtues, it even poisons the other vices. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. And that's not the way that it has to be because there is an antidote to the poison of pride. If pride is the super capital vice, humility is the super capital virtue. As we heard from our gospel reading this morning, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit are the humble, those with humility. And humility, I would sit, submit to you, is, is truly knowing who you are in the scheme of things. Humility is truly knowing how utterly dependent you are, we are, upon God for everything in life. And it's only in this place of dependence, it's only in this place of submission that we can hear God, that we can seek God, that we can find life in Jesus and in the kingdom of heaven. Did you know that in Scripture it specifically says God opposes the proud? Specifically says that. But in Scripture, it also specifically says God receives the humble. In Isaiah 66, verse 2, God proclaims through the prophet, This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Great! Being proud is bad, so go out and be humble. Go forth into the world and be humble. What a fantastic VeggieTales moral lesson, right? This is bad, this is good, do this, as if we can possibly do this in our own power and ability. It's more than that. It's more than just saying, hey, here's the moral, now go out and in your own power, in your own strength, be the best you that you could possibly be, be the better you that you could possibly be, live your best life now. It's more than that, because we need Jesus and we need his gift of the Holy Spirit to put the death pride and to overcome this capital vice and actually be humble. 
You can't do it on your own. I can't do it on my own, even though I'm the most humble person I know. <laughs> the Sermon on the Mount as a whole and the Beatitudes found in the first 12 verses of Matthew 5 do two things for us. They reveal God's high standard for righteousness within his kingdom. And thus they show us how much we need Jesus. They show us how much we need the imputation of Jesus' external alien righteousness given into us by grace through faith to meet the standard that God has. And then, at the same time, they reveal to us what the people of God, what those who live in his kingdom, should look like here and now. So they are both showing us what we need to be and what we have to have Jesus to be, and showing us what God expects for those who live in his kingdom. While we're awaiting the consummation of Jesus' kingdom, that time when all of these things will be fully realized, the people of Jesus are to live according to the sermon, to be poor in spirit. The awesome thing, one of the awesome things about God, one of the greatest things about Jesus, is this. That which he calls his people to do and be, he already is. Jesus is the truest picture of what it means to be human. And Jesus is the purest picture, the truest picture of what it means to be poor in spirit, what it means to be humble, what it means to depend upon God. I'm going to paraphrase what Paul has to say in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus is the humble son of the, of the Father, sent by the Father. And there he did not consider equality with God something to grasp, something to cling to. As opposed to Adam and Eve, the eternal son of God, the one who shared God's glory, the one through whom all things were created, when he was sent in the incarnation, did not consider Godness something to be grasped or something to cling to. Rather, Paul says, he emptied himself, he humbled himself in the incarnation, and then he humbled himself to death, death on the cross. Jesus, then, in being our righteousness, he is the humility that we need. We see in Jesus what it truly means to be humble, to live in ultimate connection with God the Father. Jesus obeyed the Father perfectly. Jesus heard and did that which the Father directed him to do. Jesus is humility. And that's great, you may be thinking to yourself, but he's Jesus and I'm not. This is true enough. Which is why we need to recognize another absolute truth. Not only is Jesus' active righteousness, his obedient righteousness, imputed to us by grace through faith, but to those who trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit is given to live as Christ's own in this world. Unless we think we're getting less from God than we deserve, let me just remind you that we are given as an indwelling permanence the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And so now it's possible to be humble. Not because we're so great, but because Jesus is humility and Jesus has poured into us his Holy Spirit to be that which he's called us to be. You see, it is possible to be found in union with Christ, both in justification and in sanctification. To see the kingdom, to have the kingdom of God in the present tense, and then to see and have the kingdom of God in its future tense fullness, we have to be poor in spirit. We have to be humble. 
here in the season of Lent. What a wonderful time it is to autopsy ourselves, to lay it out and say, Lord, search me and know. Search me and reveal to me those hidden places of, of cancerous sin within. Show to me my pride that it may be cut out, not by me, but by you. And so here in this season of Lent, I would challenge all of us, know God and know yourself. Know that God is your righteous and holy creator. Know that Jesus is the redeemer and know his standard. And now evaluate yourself accordingly. And in that evaluation, that accurate and honest evaluation of the power of the Holy Spirit, know your own pride and your need for God. We recognize our dependence. We cast ourselves upon Him in repentance. And we consistently reflect upon the cross of Jesus and know what it costs for our salvation. There really is no room for pride at the foot of the cross. In knowing Jesus and knowing ourselves and knowing God and knowing ourselves, there are some practical things that we can do in the power of the Holy Spirit to grow in humility. The first thing I would say is practice gratitude. One cannot be both proud and thankful. Humility comes from knowing yourself and knowing what you owe to God and to others. No man is an island, John Donne once put it. We don't exist by ourselves as, as autonomous beings. And so we need to practice gratitude. Giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His mercy endures forever. Giving thanks to the Lord for life in Jesus and in His name. Giving thanks to the Lord for the rain that falls, the sun that shines. Giving thanks to the Lord for the cars that we drive, the jobs that we have, the vocations that we're given. Giving thanks to the Lord for the health and the unhealth. Giving thanks to the Lord, I think as Paul says, in all things, recognizing that our existence, our salvation, our very being is totally dependent upon the Father who created. And this kind of gratitude leaves no room for pride. Practice gratitude. Know yourself. Know Jesus. Practice gratitude and practice service. You see, humility... Humility is not a matter of thinking less of yourself. It's a matter of thinking of yourself less and others more. True humility doesn't wander through life saying, I'm a person of no consequence, everyone else is better than me. That's not what humility does at all. Rather, true humility walks through life knowing who one is as a child of God and recognizing the image of God in others and so considers the other just as Considering the self and expressing that in service. We need Jesus to be humble. We need Jesus to enter into the kingdom. We need the Holy Spirit that Jesus has to give to develop humility within us. Practical steps to take during the season of Lent. Know God and know yourself. Practice gratitude. Practice service. If over the next several weeks we come to a point in preaching and teaching about these seven capital sins, you find yourself convicted and need to confess. Well, confession is good for the soul. Father Ethan and, my, and myself are available and open to pray with you and to hear your confession and offer you absolution in the name of the Lord. 
It's a biblical thing to do from James chapter 5. We're certainly willing to do that. Not so we can know your sins, but so that you can know the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and the freedom that comes with it. We humans are a proud people, and it's poison that is in our veins. Contrary to popular opinion, the antidote to pride isn't more of ourselves. I don't know about the rest of you, but I got more of me than I really want. <laughs> and you have more of me than you really want, too. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. The true antidote to pride, this spiritual poison, is Jesus. It's his cross and it's his gift of the Holy Spirit, and it's the humility that grows out of the fertile soil of dependence upon him in every single aspect of our life, in every single aspect of our faith. I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.